So just to be clear, whether or not a K-pop idol is actually gay, there is no shortage of fan content where they are imagined to be gay. And this phenomenon is quite popular among heterosexual women who consume K-pop. And this is basically what this book is about. So just a few more concepts I want to explain. I mentioned at one point the Hwarang. In the Shilla dynasty, there was a group of elite warriors and hunters called the Hwarang. In the episode, I keep saying that they were from the Chosun dynasty, but they are actually from the Shilla dynasty. They were known for their beauty, and according to the book Korea, A History by Eugene Y. Park, there is documentation of some of the Hwarang as having really strong emotional bonds to each other, and some historical researchers contend that some of the Hwarang engaged in homosexual relationships. A famous K-drama called Hwarang, The Poet Warrior Youth, came out a few years ago and starred some very famous K-pop idols as the beautiful Hwarang. One other thing I wanted to explain is that in the year 2000, Korea's Commission on Youth Protection declared homosexuality depicted in fan fiction as being harmful to youth. But after a bunch of teenage girls protested this, they eventually turned this declaration over in 2004, and fan fiction was considered its own genre. During our discussion, we talked briefly about a movie that was mentioned a lot in the book. This movie is called The King and His Clown, which is a Korean film from 2005. The author, Dr. Kwan, basically notes that this movie was a turning point in the acceptance of depictions of queerness in Korean media. At one point, we mentioned the term TERF, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. TERFs, according to Vox, quote, alternate among several theories that all claim that trans women are really men, who are ultimate oppressors of women, end quote, and, quote, their ideology doesn't allow for trans people to have self-definition or any autonomy over their gender expression, end quote. Deep fakes is something else that we discuss. Deep fakes are videos, sometimes sexually explicit ones, that use technology to basically copy-paste someone's face or likeness onto pictures or videos of someone else's bodies. In the world of K-pop, some K-pop celebrities, mostly women from what I've read, were victims of deepfake videos where the idols' faces were superimposed onto pornographic videos. Also related to this is something that we discussed earlier, which is slash fiction. In 2021, some male Korean celebrities took issue with the real person slash fiction of idols, saying that it sexualized minors. A petition to Korea's Blue House was started in order to get the government to crack down on these. Korean rapper Son Simba, as well as others, spoke out about this issue, but as far as I know, real person slash still exists in fandom spaces in Korea. We also talk about YN fanfics, which stands for Your Name Fanfiction. In this genre of fanfiction, the reader inserts themselves into the story, so in the case of K-pop, you as the reader will see the phrase Your Name, which is used to help you imagine yourself directly interacting with your idols. If you've ever consumed K-pop, you've noticed that choreography or sometimes the idols' onstage behavior with each other sometimes plays up a certain flirty coquettishness, or they'll touch each other a lot, which is also known as skinship, and these acts are known as fan service. The book describes fan service as idols acting somewhat sexually ambivalent or in a somewhat homosexual manner. In the book, Dr. Kwan writes, quote, group members showing their friendship and camaraderie may seem benign to non-fans, but those within the fanfic community take these expressions as a purposeful mahang. And by the way, the term mahang is used to mean a light but symbolic touch. So basically, fan service, which is oftentimes encouraged or choreographed by K-pop companies, become further fodder for these homoerotic fanfiction and fan art. I put links to articles about some of these concepts in the show notes, so check that out if you're interested. And now, on to the discussion. So today we're joined by Gogo Gayo's Radhika and K-Squared. Today, we're talking about the book, Straight Korean Women and Their Gay Fantasies, 
which it covers a lot about fan fiction and the flower boy concept and the portrayal of LGBTQ plus people in Korea through the lens, I would say, of straight people consuming it, as well as a little bit of LGBTQ people consuming it as well. So Radhika and K-Squared, do you want to give your overall impression of the book? I'll start with K-Squared. Yeah, so I absolutely love this book. I think it's a very important academic text, and I think it's just the tip of the iceberg to fandom studies and how fandoms can actually foster social change politically. And so this book is actually close to my heart as well, just from my own personal experience with consuming Korean content, because a lot of the content that I consume connects directly with my queer identity and my gender expression and even helping me figure out my sexual orientation. And so I find it very fascinating how the professor kind of dives into this research and uh, kind of the overall thesis, but I won't spoil it just yet. We'll get into it. But I think it is an interesting study about the queer representation, the consumption of it, and what it actually means for the LGBT movement, specifically within South Korea. Awesome. Okay. And Radhika, did you have any initial thoughts on the book? Yeah, I mean, that was a great summary. (laughs) But um, yeah, I've been reading a lot of like reviews around the book and just like realizing how groundbreaking Dr. Kwan's work is for like the LGBTQ community and just like bringing straight women or like straight female fans specifically into the conversation and like drawing that connection because I feel like it's something that's like getting bigger and bigger and the more it gets bigger the like stranger I feel like a lot of the conclusions become and sometimes the conclusions can be homophobic or like not really productive for the LGBTQ community and I feel like this conversation that we're going to have around it hopefully will bring about some more hope about just like making queer people and queer fans feel more at home in themselves and making it easier to like connect with their idols and that sort of thing because I also feel like as a queer fan I literally came out because of fan fiction and because of like queer fans and their content creation within the fandom surrounding like my idols and I'm not saying anything like that that's like the best way to come out. But I feel like that really was a home for me for a long time. Yeah, I actually wanted to first of all say that if you're listening to this, you haven't listened to the Go Go Gaia Queerness and K-pop episode, you should do that because this book is discussed there to some extent, as well as the other topics surrounding what we're going to talk about today. And also, I just also want to preface that fact that we are talking about the straight women, straight Korean women in this case, gays on queer content or queerness in general. But like Radhika mentioned, it's not completely something that we can disregard because for better, for worse, it almost for a lot of society and for media and for getting more of these stories out there, it's legitimized, quote unquote, by straight people or people who identify as heterosexual consuming it. Does that, do you guys agree with that assessment? Yeah, it's kind of like whenever you're working within a heteropatriarchal system, you do need those, you know, straight allies. It's kind of like whenever you do gender equality work, you need to invite men into the fold as well, because if you want to have any real change, you need that allyship. And so it is kind of interesting just looking at this ally that has been gaining a lot of strength in Korea specifically. I'll try to keep it within the context of South Korea uh, with straight female fans where, you know, they have gained so much socioeconomic power over the years. 
slowly but surely, it's persistently, they're getting more well-educated, they're getting higher-paying jobs and more jobs compared to previous years. And so with that, they do have more buying power. And so it is kind of interesting that, you know, they do buy into the K-pop idol industry within media. And so they have a lot of buying power and that buying power then influences what the industry actually does. And so in this case, gay fantasies. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought it was so interesting that like some of the stuff Dr. Kwan talks about is just like how how and why straight women are into this, like what they get out of it. There's so many, it's so many layers of things and it's so involved. It's not just like straightforward. And even her referencing for older American TV shows like Queer as Folks, Sex in the City and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, Will and Grace and all of that. And how, because I think like as Westerners or whatever, non-Korean people, we have that sort of transition to where like it, it was so unheard of to see these people represented on American media. And then with these shows and with this like acceptance and consumption by everyone, it became more and more mainstream. So anything else about that, Radhika, that you wanted to say? I mean, I feel like the other side of that allyship coin is like kind of like what we see in the West around the turf movement. Just like how a lot of straight women view queer people in general as like a demographic that's like underprivileged or like less privileged than them. And they feel like there's like power that they have over them kind of. And that's like pretty, I feel like damaging. And I feel like the more I think about this, because I'm also really curious about just like why straight women think that gay men and like gay romance is so fascinating. I just think that's like, not really relatable to me specifically because I am a queer person. And when I read like gay romance, I'm seeing myself in that. But it's like, if you're straight and you're finding this to be interesting, I wonder if that like power dynamic is part of the like fascination. I agree that like the allyship that straight women have with like LGBTQ people is important and like necessary but I also like see the like damaging aspect. That makes so much sense because I know there's been complaint or almost like a backlash. Cause when I was younger, cause I'm a bit older than you guys, definitely like that was when Queer as Folk was in its heyday and Will and Grace was in its heyday. And like, you know, the, the hag friend, I won't say the full like phrase of it, but um, that the whole like stereotype of like having a gay best friend, being a straight woman, the gay best friend, or being Carrie in Sex and City and having Stanford, that was all, that was all um, like in vogue. And then later it almost became like, you saw a lot of gay men, especially being like, it's so annoying to have straight women celebrate their bachelorette parties at gay bars or coming to drag shows and just causing this like ridiculous ruckus where, and we can talk about this more, but the consumption of queer people for straight people in this very strange way. And even in the book, although I really enjoy this book as well, Dr. Kwan does amazing work, but the way one phrase that stuck out to me was like gay male body. It was like so weird. Like she kept saying the gay male body. And I was like, it almost seemed like a headless, like faceless person, like just so objectifying in a weird way. And there is a little bit of like almost patting yourself on the back of like, well, I have a gay best friend. So, you know, A, I'm just like Carrie from Sex and City and B, I'm doing this charitable thing. But I don't know if I'm the only one who felt that way. Yeah, I actually, like the gay male body is so interesting because it's basically like a reflection of how a lot of women themselves are portrayed in media. 
because it's like you see that same objectification. And this is super interesting because I haven't really thought about it in this way, but like just like passing on that objectification to gay men because they feel like since that's happened to them, that's something that they're allowed to do to other like less privileged people than themselves. Oh my God. I put that in my notes, literally like the oppressed becoming the oppressor is kind of just like part of the fantasy in a sense, it's like taking back the power that they don't have within society because of the misogyny and the sexism that they experience on a day-to-day basis. And so it's them kind of like reclaiming that power by objectifying men, but with a feminist lens, which is, or, or feminizing them, excuse me. So then at the same time, it's like that own internalized misogyny in a sense, which I've never thought about before. Someone give us a research grant. We are breaking into something here, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. It's so even I am like, you know, I like I said, I grew up in that time. I had all these gay best friends. But it's interesting to think that people thought back then, I think that everyone was being so subversive, like, yeah, we're we're allies and da-da-da. And then, but actually they're like objectifying queer people. And it's also interesting. I I don't think Dr. Kwan really answers this in the book, and we were talking about this earlier, but how there's not so much of that for lesbians or queer women. It's like, oh, for some reason, straight women, gay men, like this whole thing. And it's not like a lot of like straight women first gay or queer women. It's, it's just weird. It's weird how this all works out. Yeah. And I think like the only kind of like anecdotal experience I have with people wanting like GL girls love as opposed to boys love or having these women loving women relationships are literally just other queer people who consume this content. Like all of us are just, you know, the ones who can be vocal, be out or just sitting there like, what about the women? Like, give us our women's story. <laughs> there are female stories. Definitely. And actually, since you touched on that a little bit, I do want to talk about this aspect that Radhika mentioned, or you also mentioned as well, K-Square, that you were able to find yourself and identify yourself or open that part of yourself in your own brain, your queerness by consuming some of this type of stuff. Do you, can you guys speak a little more about that? And I'll start with Radhika. Ooh. I love talking about this. I guess it's like almost like discovering myself. Okay, so let me just expose myself. I started reading BTS fan fiction a couple years ago, and now I write fan fiction like specifically in BTS. And I feel like sometimes like huge amounts of guilt and shame around this because ultimately I came out because of fan fiction and I didn't even have a sense of like realistic stories about queer people until I started consuming fan fiction because almost it's almost like okay fan fiction is written by like real people that are not necessarily writers and a lot of the queer like LGBTQ edited and published books are not as relatable because they're like through this like straight-ish gaze kind of or like lens and so a lot of the fan fiction that I read was just gay people writing about their experiences and then like using BTS idols to like sort of as a vehicle to like tell their stories and so I like came across a lot of this type of content and I was like whoa I really relate to this and I know that this is an authentic story that was told by like a queer person themselves. And there was like no editing that happened and no like commercialization that was happening because these people that write fan fiction don't make money off of their writing. And so that was like what really got me into it. And that's what gets me like attract, continues to attract me to like fan fiction because 
there's no like money circulating when I write the actual fan fiction. It's just like me trying to tell stories about like my queer experiences. And the reason why I feel guilt and shame is because I'm using my idols as a vehicle to tell the stories, right? Um, so it's kind of weird actually, because ultimately when I'm telling my stories, it has like literally nothing to do with the idols themselves. It's just like a completely different story with their names on it. And then I just like tack on the word like BTS fan fiction. And then all these people are reading it, you know? So it's like kind of, I feel very conflicted about it and I continue to feel very conflicted about it. But for some reason, I'm just still writing fan fiction because it makes me feel something. And I feel like when I, post my work online other people feel things and they're like commenting and they're like wow I really relate to this so I feel like that's what like keeps me going really yeah that's interesting I don't think you should feel shame only because in a way it's art I know it's sort of weird because it's pitting your experiences feelings and thoughts and on someone who's like real but but at the same time everyone is consuming them BTS that is in one way or another so this is just another way of it. And as long as it's not crossing some weird line, like you're not showing up at their house or something, which I know you're not, um, then I think it's <laughs> relatively okay. So anyway, uh, K-Skirt, did you want to talk about your experience too, about uh, finding yourself in, in this type of work? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that in a second, but I do just want to touch on the fan fiction thing again. I think it's so important that like a lot of the authentic fan fiction that's like fan created and circulated, and it doesn't go through that kind of like heterosexual lens at a certain point, like that is very important, even if it is written by straight people. And I think Professor Kwan mentions it in the book too. There is a lot of research that's done. There's a lot of like allyship that can be found, especially among fandoms and fans, especially. I'm very biased in that like, I love my fanship. I love my fandoms, my fellow fans. Everyone's always been accepting. I've never had a negative experience. And so I feel like when it comes to fan fiction, like there shouldn't be any shame, especially when you are writing about your K-pop idols. Most of the time you're writing about their public persona, which isn't exactly who they are personally it's what they put out in the world it is their own form of art and so I think whenever fans take that artistic persona and they project on it or they take it themselves they're they themselves are creating their own art and um, expressing themselves and exploring themselves and I think that's a very important avenue for fans to have which even though I don't consume fan fiction I will always respect it and the content creators and stuff because it is a labor of love too you know, so I think it's very important. So I just had to say that. So you're awesome, Radhika. <laughs> so my mine is going to be a little bit shorter because mine was mostly about kind of the visuals that go with K-pop. First, it was G-Dragon. He, he was my first idol. But the biggest influence was definitely like Amber Liu of FX. I remember I wasn't really a big fan of like girl groups because they were always like hyper fe- feminine in the industry. And then I remember watching a music video one time and she was wearing like a basketball tee and shorts and like had short hair. And I just went, I can do that. (laughs) Like, is this allowed? (laughs) And so from there, it just turned into like a whole thing where I was like seeking out all the gender bending idols, you know, even in just their performances and stuff. And it really kind of made me think about like how I, I identify and express myself. And then it wasn't until my adult life that I found like the BL industry and so queer cinema and TV shows, uh, especially non-Western. That's how, again, to Asia, because a lot of them, at least the ones today, focus more on like queer joy and less about like coming out. And it literally is just like my safe space, you know, where it's like, here's just, you know, a gay character and they're, that's only one part of their identity. They're just going through this whole thing. Like they're having trouble in school or like, 
they find this person really cute and they're struggling with that and their shenanigans, you know, and it's just normal. It feels very normal. And so that itself has really helped me with self-acceptance and kind of like, you know, figuring myself out and just being like, oh no, I'm okay who I am. I am queer enough. I'm very valid. And all because of, you know, K-pop and this Korean content that I've consumed. I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of going back to consumption of male bodies or whatever. And also the Korean K-pop industry using this, like Professor Kwan talks about, or Dr. Kwan talks about in the book that a lot of the first generation, I think, or first and second generation K-pop idols were modeled after characters in Japanese manga. And so that look of like, you know, the hair and the cheekbones and you know, eye makeup and all that stuff was based on that. So what do you guys think about K-pop, the K-pop industry using that and using things like shipping people as gay or whatever fan fiction for their money-making purposes? I feel like it's not, okay, not to like diminish like the super like academic work around this, but I feel like it's quite simple because it's like you have this group and you don't want to like be engaging them with anybody else and everybody in the group is the same sex the only thing you can do is just ship them together because you know that fans like seeing them get along and you also have like you know it like get, comes down to like the this huge i feel like it's really an elaborate scheme to just like get fans to like this group as like a closed unit you know what i mean So it's like, they're not allowed to date. So it's like these people that are clearly like only, they're only for us to like consume. And like these people are together for us to consume, you know? So it's like the easiest thing that they can do is just ship their own group members together. And I don't feel like it's anything more complicated than that. Like they're not trying to be like super LGBTQ friendly or anything. They're just like trying to like do the least work possible and get as many people to like, enjoy this group's chemistry that's my take doesn't dr kwan actually touch on that too saying like same-sex shipping uh means that there isn't any competition and so you can still have the fantasy of the idol without ruining it which i always thought was really interesting i'm like oh okay that like self-insertion into the storyline got it okay but bi people exist so that's like so strange Um, But she did say that she basically was saying like you can or she's interviewing other fanfic writers and they were saying something like, you know, if I if they're with a girl or she was saying like if 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 my idol is a guy and he's she he's with a girl and that girl is nothing like me, then now I'm like feeling upset, insecure, threatened, whatever it is. But if he's with his member who is also a guy, then somehow that's better. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I, I feel like that's still competition, but. But again, this is an industry that is definitely projecting heteronormative standards on their idols. So like they're only thinking that the fans are straight because as Radhika mentioned, like they're not some like LGBT kind of like, we're going to celebrate this and push this agenda. They just want to make money. And this is one way to do it with the least amount of effort. Very good point. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely erasure. It's not, but I think what's interesting is that queer fans make it into empowerment because they're like you haha you don't think that you're being an ally but you are sub like without even knowing it and i think that's what's really exciting for queer fans okay so next let's talk about the difference that dr kwan wrote about between korean fans maybe even korean japanese fans and i think she talked a little bit about chinese fans and their consumption of fan fiction and 
queerness in K-pop or media in general, as well as international fans. Does anyone have any thoughts to start off with first? I will just say one thing. It's just very short. I find it funny and amusing how universal it is that um, in the book, she had uh, some members of the LGBT community, gay men specifically, that she had interviewed. And she was asking about this content and the consumption of it and their take on it. And one of the interviewees mentioned how, you know, if you want to find anything good, you need to go abroad. And so like his consumption was more Western media. And I just kind of chuckled because it, I wanted to find something good and more relatable. I also went abroad um, and turned to Asia to find this content as well, which I thought was so funny. So I did have to mention that. So it feels very much the same when it comes to, at least from the queer community, you know, we have to look abroad. The grass is greener on the other side, so to speak. Especially at least for a presentation of the visuals of K-pop, typically, especially with boy groups being completely decked out with hair and makeup and lipstick eyeliner, everything. We don't have that much in Western media. I mean, we had like kind of certain people like Prince or, and I'm going like way back when David Bowie, (laughs) but it was kind of like more unusual. Whereas in K-pop, like everybody is wearing all the things, all the jewelry. So yeah, any takes on the ways K fans consume this type of stuff versus non-Korean fans? I feel like going off of that, it's like the one dimensional way of thinking about it is like more conservative countries are just like behind the West. But I feel like what's really interesting is that Korea's journey towards like integrating queer people into society is just different. And their like process is different. And I feel like that is like what is the underlying theme when we say that we're like constantly looking to different countries to find like more queer content or like different queer content. And I think that's super interesting. No, I I think just playing off of that, like it's kind of what we mentioned, I think a bit earlier too, where it's like, even in Korea, transgenderism or gender play, uh, androgyny is more at the forefront and more acceptable in certain ways. But if someone says the words, I'm gay, oh no, we got to shut this down. So it is kind of interesting how just you know, certain things are more acceptable or can be played with in Korea compared to like the United States, for example, because that's just my lived experience. Yeah. And something that you said earlier about how a lot of themes in like LGBTQ books, especially in the West, is just that like, it's like doom and destruction type thing, like where somebody dies or like there's homophobia in the family or stuff like that. And it's a lot easier to find just like happy, you know, like regular old queer romance in BL, which is another like, I have to go somewhere else to like find what I'm looking for. I wanted to talk a little bit more about fanfic consumption as well, because in the book, she talks about how in the year 2000, the Korean government actually declared homosexuality and fan fiction as harmful to youth. And I don't know, maybe like this idea of like, it's contagious or something. If you see it, you'll like suddenly be it. Because in some ways it's kind of true because of course, through representation and through having that, like like I said, door of your mind, even open to this as a possibility does make people think about it and realize it. And some people are like, oh, never mind, I'm, I'm not any of this, but some people might realize something about themselves. But then what I thought was so interesting and awesome really is, especially because even in the West, fan fictions kind of played down as like this not as legitimized art form as someone who's published by some major publishing company or whatever. It's just seen as just this kind of frivolous thing. 
But teenagers more or less protested against this government declaration saying that, you know, it should be its own own genre of of books because they were consuming a lot of manhwa and stuff at the time. And then in 2004, the Korean government excluded homosexual content from their list of media that they deemed as harmful to youth. Again, with the universality of it, I think it's just kind of interesting how there's always this fear mongering where it's like, oh no, we need to protect the kids. We need to protect the youth from these themes. Like it's going to damage them and damage society as a whole because we have that everywhere. You know, and so like to me, having that youth ordinance in particular, it was because to them, in some sense, or at least in the policymakers' minds, homosexuality would ruin the power structure, the power system that was kind of like already established culturally within society. Because it definitely is just like, you know, well, what happens if two women love each other, two men love each other? Like it's just it completely is outside of the realm of possibility of, you know, the binary and the structure of like men above women and what it means to be a man and woman, including who you love. And so to them, they're sitting there like, because that's so damaging, they take this paternalistic approach trying to censor this kind of content when in actuality, that just makes things worse because like, you know, then these kids who were born to be who they are to be don't know that this is okay and that this is acceptable or to explore that part of their identity. Because even if, you know, a kid ends up finding out like, oh no, I'm definitely straight. It's still healthy to have that exploration anyways and that questioning and to have that freedom. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree with these teenage fans that like, yeah, it should be its own genre because in all honesty, it does have a a lot of its own characteristics, um, especially when you start talking about the differences between fan fiction and BL cinema. You know, they're two different things. They do have similarities, but they are their own genres. Definitely. One one other thing that struck me in this book was how it's sort of, I really lament the fact that there's not a lot of documentation of homosexuality in Korea in real life. It sort of goes from like Chosun era Hwarangs <laughs> to like, now we have gay people <laughs> and we have pride and soul and stuff like that. And it seems there's this huge gap where no one was able to do anything because of Confucian patriarchy, probably, which so many of my episodes, we talk about Confucian patriarchy. But one thing that I think is overlooked sometimes is how related things like women's rights, which is a big issue in Korea, again, hearkening back to my Kim Ji-young born 1982, several episodes I made, and like feminist stuff or just gender equality and LGBT stuff, like they're all kind of like have something to do with each other. And I don't know exactly in Korea if they kind of align with each other ever, but I hope so, or that would be good if they could. And maybe that's maybe Korean K-pop fans can can work together with uh, with with queer groups or something to to make something happen. But maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I just want to like come in real quick with this. I, I will not get on my soapbox, but I feel like that there is very much a connection between the two movements of the women's movement and the LGBT uh, movement because both of them, in essence, kind of attack gender roles and attack gender at the root. And so I feel like that is definitely like they go hand in hand with one another about like what it means to be a man, woman, non-binary, including sexual identity and how they express it. And then they both have their own forms of discrimination. This isn't a competition of who has it worse, but both of them have been oppressed because of the system. And so why wouldn't they join hands to kind of deconstruct the system that has oppressed both of them in similar and in varying ways? I guess, I mean, that's like, I feel like part of the foundation of this type of work, right? Like the feminist movement is just like bringing to light more what 
female consumers want. And I feel like that's like moving more towards like the fact that they're like preferences and their consumption and the things that they're interested in are now viewed as like monetary commodities kind of. And that's like, I think it's interesting that like from a capitalism point of view that that's now important all of a sudden because that's where the money is. And so as a result, there's like all this increased monetization of like BL writers and then like sort of commercialization of their work into like webtoons and like bigger like shows and dramas and stuff like that. And then not really like giving as much credit to the actual people who are making that work and sort of spearheading the stories. Yeah. One thing I found interesting was Dr. Kwan mentioned some of, a lot of the stories that are in older K-dramas or K-movies, like it reminded me of Coffee Prince. I don't know if you guys saw that. And I don't think she mentioned that one specifically, but in a lot of instances, someone who is trans or someone who is appearing one gender, there's a lot of like that gender bending, like she's a girl, but actually she's now at this all boys school or whatever. Those things end where the love interests are normalized, quote unquote, heteronormalized, because in real life, that's not actually a guy, right? It's like someone who, and it's so weird because it sort of like walks this line of like almost something about, and I don't want to speak for a trans community, but like somewhere along the trans path almost. And then they're like, just kidding. They're, they're the secret's out. This is actually a heterosexual relationship. And now the love interest can like this sigh of relief because they're who they've been attracted to this whole time was the opposite gender person. Yeah, I think. Have you guys seen Oran Host Club? I've heard of it. Haven't watched it yet. <laughs> that's like a similar like anime that's like almost. Okay, yeah, Case Grid has seen it. It's like similar to that. But I also wanted to ask if you guys have seen The King and His Clown. I have. I haven't, but now this book makes me want to watch it. I kept seeing it mentioned. Yeah, so I ended up actually watching the movie because of this book because she mentioned it several times of being like a turning point within the queer cinema industry in Korea. She was like, boom, 2005, that's when things changed. And so I was like, all right, well, now I got to watch it. And so I'm I'm not going to give away too much of the movie. It's pretty straightforward. It's about two kind of performers who end up going to the king's palace to be like the royal kind of performers there. And uh, some drama, well, a lot of drama ensues um, because there's always a lot of drama in royal courts. And so I will say this, it is 100% queer coded, 100%. I can see why people were disappointed though, because it was like, as soon as they were like getting to the point where it could be like explicitly queer, it was like, nope, we're going to back off. Like, that's not what it is. And then even the like explicitly queer moments for lack of a better phrase, it was done in a moment where like um, it was abuse or it was negative. And so then the only real like positive queer love never actually came like fully on screen. But it's 100% gay and I'm so frustrated by it because like they were so close. They could have just pulled the trigger. It was right there. And I'm just sitting there like, <sighs> I'm like, this was the movie? Like, come on. In a way, although we were talking about how in a lot of Asian content regarding queerness, there's not as much death, despair, or, you know, taking of one's life or something maybe, but there, this aspect of like the person you fell in love with doesn't actually love you back for you being either you or, you know, like there's this like weird hitch in every one of these scenarios. And that's to me a little bit sad as well. 
So, but that's where I guess fan fiction can come in and like alleviate that. I want to shift gears here and talk a little bit about the idols, two things, the idols themselves being the objects of this type of attention, especially if they themselves, because of course some idols must be that we don't know actually in the realm of queerness, but there's some idols who definitely are not, and they are (laughs) subjected to being shipped with each other. And then also what, if any thoughts you may have about companies who try to, we talked about this a little bit, but like to market on this and capitalize on this. Yeah. I I don't have as many thoughts about like from the company level, but I feel like within fandoms, it can be like really uncomfortable space to like be shipping like idols themselves. Yeah. I mean, I feel like recently there's been like a lot of stuff around Namjoon, the leader of BTS and like shipping him with somebody And that opened up a lot of conversations that I saw on TikTok and Twitter, mainly TikTok, about like just queer fans talking about how the default and like the like somehow like assuming that idols are straight is like not imposing sexuality. But then once we're like, oh, maybe he's gay, that's that suddenly is imposing sexuality and that is like immoral or like disgusting and all of this type of like rhetoric around that just like idea of queer fans just wanting to see themselves in their idol. It might not be that that's what like their identity is, but it might also be that that is, you know? And I feel like that's connected in a sense to like a lot of the political stuff that's happening in the U.S. around like the don't say gay bills and just about how like if your teacher is straight they can talk about their partner but if they're gay they can't because that's sexualization and it's just like this really strange double standard that's always been confusing to me when I've like talked about those types of things in the fandoms. Yeah it's kind of like anyone who's just not straight is immediately like sexualized. Because I think there is that history of just sexualizing the LGBT community in general, because it's always been like a taboo or, or stuff like that. And I feel like that's the same in Korea as it is in the United States. And so I've been seeing that conversation as well, where a lot of fans are sitting there like, what, it's all of a sudden wrong just because like, I'm assuming that like, I can get with an idol, you know, the your name fic who happens to be the same gender that I identify as, you know, like, how is that weirder? I, and I think, too, the way that um, I just want to point out the way that you spoke about it to Radhika is like from the fan perspective, there definitely is, at least from what I've seen. But I'm in a lot of like of the same kind of conversations as well. We are able as fans to kind of like separate the public persona versus the actual person when it comes to K-pop idols, because it is like an exaggeration or a completely different kind of take on who they are. And I feel like where the controversy comes in is when people overstep that bound, you know, and kind of like start shipping or taking it to a very uncomfortable degree with, you know, celebrities who aren't in the idol industry, who their public persona is very much who they are. And so they would find it uncomfortable, you know, that people are just like making these YN stories or like shipping them with somebody else because they're they're like, oh, that's like, because I wouldn't want people shipping me with anyone else. I, I don't care about the gender or anything. That just would be kind of uncomfortable for me, you know? So, like, I can understand um, from their perspective how it would be a little bit different. But there is that kind of, like, distance with idols, at least just because of how constructed some things are. I've seen I, some fans or they themselves identify as some type of 
religious. And sometimes I've seen them object to, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but they've objected to this personification of someone as queer in, in real life. And I don't think they're doing a great, the greatest job of separating their, like their celebrity persona versus like, this person's real life. And you're like, yeah, this person's definitely gay, but then someone who really likes that person and even doesn't mind when he's all in makeup and being all touchy, <laughs> fan servicey, gay uh, acting with somebody else in his group, they might object to it and say, no, no, he's a good Christian boy. Or, you know, like, no, no, he's a good boy. And I, I find that so strange. I'm like, okay, then why are you here? Which is maybe harsh of me to think that, um, like, okay, if you don't like any of this, like, why, what is keeping you here? I, I'm a little bit confused by that sometimes. Yeah, I also feel like that's connected to the like real slash and what's the other word where you like edit like people's faces onto things? Oh, deep fake. Deep fake. Deep fake. Yeah, it's also like the deep fake stuff where it's like, I don't know. I mean, to an extent, fan fiction is like very, very removed from the actual people. But like once you get into like this type of stuff where you're like editing their faces onto like in like something else it's like really kind of weird and damaging and unrealistic it's just a disconnect from reality i i find it that's why i find it interesting and kind of strange that k-pop companies will kind of buy into this and and play it up maybe or give because i know they were saying in the book that for example some of the second gen people they i don't think she specified who they'll give him a personality of like he's the sporty one or like and he's the blah blah one and then older fan fictions revolved around these. And they did know like, this is just a persona or whatever. But, but in this day and age of so many scandals and so many, you know, not to get too much into it, but like burning sun, just crazy things happening that is out more in the, in media and making international news, even why they would play this kind of stuff up. Like, I don't, I know in the book, they talk about SM had this fan fiction competition where you could write in and send in your best fanfic. And a lot of it was, you know, queer fanfic. But I don't know if that would happen now or how companies really view this now, because I feel like it also could be a liability. Like, yes, it's definitely like something for their bottom line. It, it, it adds to it. And there's that aspect of it. But what about the potential downside for them? See, I feel like the industry has kind of gone through like waves where things aren't necessarily repeating, but there's certainly an echo. Like I know with second gen, when I got into it, it was very much like we're going to ham it up. We're going to play into this. And then it kind of died down around like third generation. And then most recently, it's kind of started back up again. And there's actually been a boom, not just within the K-pop industry, but within the BL industry coming out of Korea as well. We're getting all that content again. And so I think it's just like these different waves just keep coming and going. And the industry is just hopping on to whatever they can to, to just capitalize on it. Because um, a big ticket issue, at least now, compared to second gen, is actually having that activism. And so with the increased globalization and everything, like governments that champion LGBT rights, you have more legitimacy in the global theater. But in conservative nations like this, where it's still very much considered like counterculture or taboo, they can still capitalize on that, but then do it in a way that like they can make it look like it's politically progressive as well. Like, look, we're, we have all this queer media we have like all these K-pop idols who hold the rainbow flag, but won't say anything, you know, and they're just like, see, aren't we just great, you know, and they're just capitalizing on that. I forget what my point was. Just ignore me for a second. <laughs> no, that no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just like another like form of erasure 
it's like just double standard vibes actually. Cause it's like erasure, but then on the backside, it's just really about making more money because the, the queer fans, they know that the queer fans are there to support the idols and they want to like figure out how to like make the queer fans feel like they have power, but like don't actually really have any power at all. Yeah. That all makes sense. And just writing a trend, writing a wave or, I mean, even negative press is press, you know, that kind of thing. It might still get someone into a group. So I, I think that's true that probably it's still beneficial no matter what. One thing I want to mention, because I don't know if you guys have heard, I did an episode about the book Shine by Girls Generation member Jessica Jung. And then just to like see what parts of that might be real and what aspects of trainee life and idol life could be real. I like watched a lot of like videos and stuff by English speaking, former trainees or former K-pop idols. And one thing that just struck me that we don't really have to talk a lot about, but I just want to talk about, mention it was that sometimes people come out as queer or trans to their members in real life. They're, they're talking from their own experience, people they know who've like come out to other members in their group. And some members take it really well and are supportive and some members really do not. And I, I, I you know, we can't just act like there isn't tons of homophobia in Korean society or even internalized homophobia where someone may never come out ever, not only because they live in Korea or they may have to face the wrath of fans or whatever, whoever, but because they're not prepared to go there themselves. And I know Dr. Kwan talks a lot about Christianity bringing to Korea because, you know, we went from Horang and Chosun era stuff and kind of people not caring about as much about gender as Case Word was saying to this kind of idea of like, no, this is wrong. Like you cannot be doing this. This is wrong. And she mentions or alludes to the fact that it's sort of brought over by Western Christian missionaries. And just that dilemma of trying to like play with or go there sort of somewhat, whether you're an idol who's extremely homophobic, who might be put up to doing that kind of fan service stuff by your agency or whether you are, but you're just like never, ever, ever going to come out no matter what, or even to like yourself. I mean, you know, you don't, I don't think anybody owes it to the fans to come out for sure, but I mean, to themselves and the quote unquote open secrets. Cause there's a lot of like fan blogs and stuff for they're like, so-and-so went to a gay bar. So he must be gay or like, yeah. So so-and-so is waving the, they picked up a flag off the stage that was thrown up there and he's walking around the rainbow rainbow flag or she is. And so they must be queer. Um, there's so much push and pull. I first, I feel for any of the idols or any of the celebrities who are in this industry who have to deal with that because it is always hard to be like deal with not only the internalized homophobia, but like thinking about like, you know, this construct of ha- having to come out and not being able to be your true self. And then your company saying one thing, but you have to do another and all this other fun stuff. But then on the other hand of things too, I hear a lot from queer fans particularly international, because unfortunately I'm not fluent in Korean, so I can't speak on that. But from international fans, there's a lot of people that I've seen who are just like, well, I'm queer and I would, like, we all know this person is also within the community. Why can't they just say it? You know, because all of us are kind of starved for that, you know, almost affirmation or validation or representation from our faves. But like on the same side of things, we do have to think about these idols and like their positioning within within the industry. And it really does kind of irritate me the capital like I love and hate the capitalization of queerness within this content because it's good because I'm getting it and like I'm getting more of it and more money's going into it. But then on the same side of things, it's not authentic. And what I'm craving now, but I can't necessarily demand, is to have that allyship and the actual like backing behind it of sitting here like oh not only are we going to give you the fan service but we're going to allow our idols to be who they are 
and to say things without like censoring that. But that's just not the case right now, unfortunately. Yeah. And the struggle is real because I know even when girls generation, Tiffany went to perform somewhere, some pride, I think probably in the States where she said something very declarative about supporting gay rights and she got a lot of backlash in Korean media, at least. So yeah, Jung-hoon, um, Jung-hoon of Shiny supported an openly queer transgender student and he just got a lot of hate after that. But that was like a very defining moment for a lot of queer fans, at least where we were just in there like, oh, finally, <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> I'm not really sure if this was what you were saying with like the whole idea of like push and pull, like we never really know if an idol is straight or queer, but I, to an extent, I feel like that's an okay way for like the idols themselves to like be accessible to all kinds of people. And I feel like obviously that's related to capitalism and making money and being making just like as many racking up as many fans as possible. But I also think that that's knowing like the idol's sexuality and like being constantly confused about their sexuality is something that's like, I think kind of interesting. And I think it's actually better than the idol actually just like saying their sexuality out loud you know and I think it's like more it paints them as a more of a human being and like a private like sort of less of a commodity I think I don't know I feel like in western media we're like really big into like knowing every single thing about a person and obviously like as we move forward in like k-pop related stuff like third generation it's like more about like just like day-to-day content but I also think that it's interesting that that's like a phenomenon that's like going on with the like just confusion about an idol sexuality. I think I was relating a little more to K Square's original thought about, you know, what's authentic, what's not, because it kind of pains me to think that someone who's like virulently, is that the word virulently homophobic is having to like play around with his groupmate that he might even hate completely. I mean, all this is for play, right? And for show. And like we don't even know who like has a civil relationship with each other, you know, from a professional standpoint or not, much less a romantic one or whatever. But what you're saying is interesting too, because it does lend itself, the mystery and stuff, it lends itself to like all the lore about being a K-pop fan or just like not having to have that access that we are so used to having here in the West and that they have even this persona that they need to play up all the time. It does remove them. And maybe that's somewhat actually better for them for sure. And it's interesting also for fans that you just never know. And that just is what it is. So earlier we were talking about the impact that this type of stuff can have politically, like how it can be a force for change and good and for bringing about more queer content. And do you guys have thoughts as to how something like fan fiction or just the fantastical nature of K-pop and how people present and the visuals and all that and fan service can lend itself to the actual real life LGBTQ plus queer rights movements in Korea or elsewhere? So I am definitely in the camp of more of a positive take on all of this. I feel like because of the increased consumption and creation of this content, not just from the industry, but more importantly from fans themselves, is a very powerful force, especially when you have these straight female fans who are educating themselves on LGBT issues so that they can write more authentic pieces. And then they end up like forming this allyship with people who may be closeted or out sitting there like, okay, like you see me, you want to understand me, let's start this conversation. And so I feel like this kind of content, now that we're getting it, has the potential for some real change, even if the industry isn't intentionally, you know, rooting for that necessarily. 
it is just a positive unintentional consequence of everything with, you know, more visibility. And I think that is the main thing too, is that there isn't a lot of visibility of like real life LGBT people within Korea because it isn't safe necessarily. And so with female fans and with women, you know, pushing for more of this content, pushing for more of this education, more authentic representation, not just stereotypes anymore. We can get more people to come out so that we can have more authentic stories. We can have more representation, such as Holland in Oceans Like Me, or even the film production company of Strongberry that I absolutely adore, who makes for queer people by queer people films. And so, yeah, that's just my positive take on it. I feel like, you know, as long as we keep celebrating this kind of content to a healthy degree and keeping the industry in check, uh, it can become like a real real social force, uh, not just in South Korea, but I think for global fans and other global communities as well. And Radhika, did you want to add to that at all? I could not have said it better, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I hope that's where all this continues to go and it goes in that direction. I know you guys were saying in our other episode we recorded about love in the big city, that it's important as consumers, even if we are, I think sometimes people downplay the role of international fans versus like homegrown Korean fans and our impact. But I do think like they definitely pay attention if they weren't before they definitely do now. So consuming things like you were mentioning Strongberry produced media or, you know, like Holland's drama or supporting Holland himself or people who are, are out happen to be out or anything that is like in the realm of BL or do they make GL <laughs> like girl up? Do they make those? And they do. They're hard to find, but they do exist. Strawberry actually does make some lesbian films. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. But anyway, consuming this type of stuff can only help. Everybody listen to Go Go Gayo and read this book if you can. And yeah, thank you to Radhika and K-Squared. I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Special thanks to Radhika and K-Squared for joining me for today's episode and for their research. Please check out the Gogo Gayo podcast, which you can find a link to in my show notes. As a reminder, you can reach me on social media on Instagram at kpopbookshelfpod and on Twitter at kpopbookshelf. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check my blog and see the sources I used for researching this episode. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. Special thanks to AO for designing my blog. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.